The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, if you will turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. While you're doing that, I bring you greetings from Western Seminary and from Hinson Church. They will be praying for me and for you uh, right, right about now, I think, is when, when our service starts. And so it, it is very good to be here. Good to be here. Matthew, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and an, an eyewitness of so many things of which he writes about in his gospel, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, We ask this, that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Is he qualified? Is she qualified? It's a question that's critical to the way that we live life, isn't it? We, we ask that question, or at least we ought to, right, each time that we face a personal decision, whether it be for a job, hiring someone, for politics, who we vote for, in sports, who do we start, or in academia, what school do I go to? Do they have qualified people there to teach me? We, we know, don't we, that each job comes with its commensurate set of qualifications, And and skills and training, experience, are normally near the top of the list. Some things make that list of qualifications, don't they, that are actually not that legitimate. Oftentimes in our human fickleness, appearance, popularity, charisma, those make their way on the list when they really ought not to, when they really ought not to. Sometimes need or desire is seen as the most important qualification but that's really not a good way to go, is it? Today, there's a lot of people wondering if education should be on the list of qualifications. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit biased in this 
because I, I work for a degree-granting institution. But I think there's always going to be a desire for credential training in certain fields. For example, if you haven't graduated from a credible, reputable medical school, I don't want you operating on me. And I don't care whether or not you stayed at Holiday Inn Express, right? In our text this morning, we're going to be asking that question. Is he qualified? And we're going to consider, first, what would disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah, the Savior, our great high priest? What would disqualify him? And then what would qualify Jesus to be our Messiah? our great high priest, the true son of God. Now, of course, we join, when we start reading Matthew 4, we join the story midstream, don't we? We have to ask ourselves, well, well, what are we supposed to ask ourselves? What are the three most important things in biblical interpretation? Context, context, and context, yeah. And and so, so here's the context, because we're joining it right in the middle of a story, not just right in the middle of the gospel, but right in the middle of the Bible just about, right? And so what's gone on up to this point in time? Well, here's one thing that we need to know is that some 1,400 or 1,500 years before the events recorded in Matthew 4 took place, the children of Israel had escaped slavery in Egypt and led by Moses, they had crossed over the Red Sea and were entering into the wilderness, entering into the wilderness on their way to the land that God had promised them. And the question that was always confronting those Israelite sojourners was, are you going to trust the Lord? Now, God had provided them God had provided for them. He had provided them with food, and he had done so miraculously. God had provided them with water, and he had done so miraculously. But he didn't do so without them grumbling and complaining and voicing their displeasure and whining. And then they grumbled and complained some more. And then after that, they grumbled, right? They were frustrated and angry and impatient with God's timing. They were frustrated and angry and impatient and sick and tired of his provision. And in that context of the children of Israel leaving, Moses spoke to them, God spoke to them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, which is the exact same passage that Jesus quoted from in our text this morning, God refers to Israel in Deuteronomy 8, to the children of Israel, he calls Israel his son. His son. And now, when we go forward 1,500 years to the time of Jesus, there's a new son that has entered into the wilderness. And he's going to face tests, many of the same kind of tests that 1,500 years earlier, Israel, the son of God, had faced. And he's going to learn the lessons that Israel had only imperfectly grasped. His father the God and father of Abraham, the God and father of Isaac and Jacob, the God and father of Jesus is going to test him in the school of privation. And Jesus' triumphant rebuttal of the devil's temptations and suggestions, they're going to ensure that the filial bond between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ can survive in spite of the conflict that lies ahead for Jesus See, Jesus 
is going to have to trust God, not just in the wilderness, but for the rest of his ministry. Jesus had dwelt in the shadow of the Most High. But one day, that's going to be tested at the cross. And the question that confronts Jesus here is, will he trust the Lord? Will he trust his Father? And in our passage this morning in Matthew 4, Jesus is presented to us as the true Son of God, the best and the perfect Son, the best and the perfect Israel through whom God's redemptive purposes will be fulfilled. So this morning, if you are here with us and and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I, I would invite you to consider the Lord Jesus Christ and his battle with temptation that we're gonna read about here this morning. Do you recognize that there is someone who has faced temptation to the nth degree and never, ever sinned, not even once. Not even once. More importantly, do you realize that that is the standard, the absolute standard that the Lord God requires of you? If so, do you recognize how far short of that you have fallen? And if that's the case, what's going to qualify you to stand before God? And if you can't do that, ask yourself this. What would it take for you to follow someone who is qualified to stand before God? What would it take? What would it take? You're here this morning and you do understand yourself to be a Christian. I would like for you to consider the value of having a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, the right hand of God, and who has faced every temptation, every temptation that is common to man, every temptation, every kind of temptation that you will face, and he was victorious. Consider the fact that even now, he intercedes on your behalf. All right, let's dig into this passage. Matthew chapter four. Let's let's read the first four verses again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, what do we have here? Jesus is being led by the Spirit. And we would expect that, wouldn't we? Or would we? Would we? Isn't Jesus the Son of God? Does he need to be led by the Spirit? And if he's led by the Spirit, why is he being led into temptation? This is the very same Spirit of God that had anointed Jesus at his baptism just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 3. And now he's leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Jesus is submitting to the Spirit here. And the purpose for the leading here is that the Spirit would lead Jesus so that he would be tempted by Satan. And that sounds so strange to us. Why would God lead Jesus into temptation by the devil? I mean, aren't we supposed to ask God, lead us not into temptation? Why would the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the hands of the devil? God doesn't tempt, though. What does God do? God tests. God proves. 
God tests Jesus here, just like he tests you to prove your faithfulness, to strengthen you. Satan is called the tempter, and for good reason. And it is very clear that everything Satan does, it is bent on evil. The devil's desire to do evil here is subsumed by our sovereign God's plan, his good purpose to test and to prove. Satan tempts toward evil. God uses that to test and prove toward strength and faithfulness. So the initiative here is with God to test and to prove and to strengthen. There's a divine intention behind this. The devil's hostile intention is to sin, to tempt to sin. But here it's being put to service by God. God's deliberate purpose of strengthening, of proving, of testing his son. So right off the bat, I, I think we need to understand something. That if you are reconciled to God, if you're a, a child of the king... If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that God is sovereign over everything that comes into your life, even the worst of it. Even the worst of it. And as the hymn writer says, behind the shadow of providence, there hides a smiling face. We don't always see that, do we, in the midst of our trials? But you need to know, you need to believe that God is sovereign over everything that comes into your life. And God never does anything that is bad for you ultimately. God is always good and kind. And sometimes it is so hard for us to see that. But God is working according to a different agenda. He is working according to a very different time trial. He has eternity and your eternal destiny and your eternal strengthening is in mind. And I don't say that to minimize for a second the hardship that some of you face daily to some of the horrific trials that you have gone through. But know this to be true, that the Lord Jesus Christ believed every trial to be under the good and kind hand of God, and he submitted to the worst. And now he reigns at the right hand of God the Father on your behalf. We're reminded here in verse 2, Jesus tempted for 40 days. I I, I think we're supposed to be reminded of the 40 years of hunger that the Israelites went through in the desert, in the wilderness. And and, and it's, it's interesting here, like, right? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. I hope so. I hope so, right? Uh, that, that, that's, an amazing, that's an amazing thing. Of course he was hungry. We should note, though, that, that just because Jesus was divine, the Son of God, he's also completely human. And being the Son of God does not exempt Jesus from human things like eating, but also needing to pray, needing to fast. It, it seems like praying and fasting were a routine part of Jesus' life. And after 40 days, Jesus was hungry. He'd had this mountaintop experience. I mean, he was on a spiritual high. He had been in, just enmeshed in spiritual disciplines of praying and fasting for 40 days. And if there was ever a time that one would be impervious, you would think it would be now. If there was ever a time that Satan would go, you know, this is probably not the best time to go tempt someone. Because look, at this is like Superman, super spiritual man. But it's at that time that Satan strikes. Jesus is hungry. Jesus is hungry. 
the devil uses the fasting of Jesus as an opportunity to tempt. And, and again, we should note this too as followers of Christ, that obedience and piety are no shield from trials, right? That mountaintop experience is not going to make you impervious to the temptations of Satan, to, to, to the trials that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Oftentimes, and you probably know this from your own experience, it's at the time where you feel the closest to God, it's at that time that Satan strikes. Because he knows the heart of a human, doesn't he? We should expect it. Now, I'm not saying, well, if that's the case, don't pray and don't fast. That just opens you up to it. No, I'm not saying that. You need to do such things. But just don't be so naive as to think that now I'm all prayed up. Satan's going to leave me alone. He didn't do it for Jesus. He's not going to do it for you. Okay? Note here that the, the devil uses the same title that God used of Jesus at the baptism, the Son of God. Remember Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son. And so Satan comes on the scene and he says, if you are the Son of God. Now this probably should be translated, actually, since you are the Son of God. I mean, Satan's no moron. He knows who Jesus is, right? And further, he's seen lots of sons come through the wilderness, hasn't he? First, there was, there was Adam in the garden, and then there was the children of Israel as they traipsed through the desert. He's seen lots of sons come through the wilderness, and now there's another son. There's another son in the wilderness. So the question isn't whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. That, that's not the question here. We know that. God has said that. The question is, what kind of son are you? That's the question that Satan's getting at here. What kind of son would Jesus be? And, and Satan intimates that, that God, that the, the son of God, if you, since you are the son of God, you have no need to be hungry because you can turn stones into bread. But Jesus recognizes that his hunger is an experience designed by God to teach him the lessons that the Israelites were supposed to learn, the lessons of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus is being confronted with the question of his own immediate needs. Heavens, turn some stones into bread. Have any of you been to Israel before? Okay, let me just tell you what Israel is like. No grain, a giant rock garden. There's a veritable, if you can turn stones into bread, there is a smorgasbord there for you and no one would miss a few rocks no one would miss any what's the harm what's the harm Jesus is confronted with the question of his immediate needs but he recognizes that in obeying the spirit of God by going into the wilderness to pray and to fast this fast is declared by God this is God's will for him at this time and Jesus has to listen to him to God the Father, to the Spirit. And so he quotes Scripture to Satan in refusing the temptation. And, and this should be instructive for us as believers of Jesus, in Jesus Christ, right? He is our great example. Let me tell you what Jesus did not do. Jesus, when Satan comes to him and says, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You can do that. Here's what Jesus didn't do. Satan, who do you think you're fooling? Don't you know who I am? Look, Son of God, man, I have no need of such things like food. I don't need that. Be gone. Get away. No, he, he doesn't say that, does he? 
he, he, he doesn't scoff at Satan and say, you can't tempt me. I can't sin. What is your point? He doesn't do that. Instead, he does what any human would do or could do. What any human, any man or woman can do. He quotes the word of God. But he doesn't quote just any scripture. He knows the Bible well. He quotes the appropriate scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. These chapters are, as I said earlier, they're a record of Moses telling the next generation of Israelites about their parents' hardship and problems in the wilderness. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. It underscores God's provision of manna as an alternative to the Israelites' reliance on their own abilities to feed themselves. Israel's hunger in the wilderness 1,500 years earlier had been designed by God to test their faithfulness. And it was only after they had been hungry for a while that God chose to feed them according to his timetable for his good purposes. And so when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 at Satan, it's evidence that he saw his hunger as God's will for his life at that time. And it was not to be avoided for self-indulgence. Even the self-indulgence of stifling real hunger pains To do that would have been to call into question God's good priorities. And as the son of God, Jesus has to trust and obey God. He has to believe that what God is is putting him through is for his good and for his glory. What kind of son is Jesus going to be? A son who trusts his father. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, what does Satan do here? Temptation number two. He takes Jesus up to a high corner of the temple. A fall would have been fatal. And at this point, Satan does something really interesting. He quotes scripture. Well, Jesus had quoted scripture at him. Two can play that game. Two can play that game. I'll I'll quote scripture at you then, Jesus. That's what you want to do. And he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And in this psalm, God promises that he will protect all those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a promise of protection from the evil one to keep us from stumbling. And so we're confronted with something a little frightening here. Does Satan know the Bible? Does Satan know the Bible? Yes, he does. Is that shocking to you? Can that be? Isn't the word of God automatically a blessing, regardless of how it's used? Strap a Bible around your neck and some garlic. It'll keep away the vampires and Satan, right? He can't go near it. Just hold your Bible up. And it's like, no, no. And we find out that's not the case. Satan knows the scriptures. Satan knows the scriptures. Perhaps the Bible's not just an automatic blessing, regardless of how it's used. Perhaps Scripture can be misused. 
Seems like it can. If our passage teaches us anything here, as Satan uses the Bible and Jesus rebukes his use of it, that should teach us that the Bible can be used diabolically. And that is a terrifying prospect. That is a terrifying prospect. Satan knows the words of God. He does. But he does not know and trust the God of the word. And so he cannot ultimately understand the word of God. Let me repeat that. Satan does know the words of God. He does. But he does not know and trust the God of the word. And so he cannot understand the word of God. And I'd like for you to consider your own relationship with the Lord this morning and the way that you interpret his word. Are you faithful in it? Do you trust him? Let's, let's analyze Satan's hermeneutic, his way of understanding scripture. What was Satan doing? Did Satan get the words of Psalm 91 wrong? Maybe he just misquoted it, right? Maybe he changed some words so where Jesus would go, wait a second, that's not what it actually says. And then you go to Psalm 91 and you go, dang, Satan got it exactly right. He quoted it word perfect to Jesus. Okay, well, that wasn't it. Was he wrong in the subject of the application? Uh, maybe that applies to everyone else, but not the Messiah. But then you go and you read Psalm 91, and, and I read it this morning. If there's anyone that it applies to, it's the Messiah. Satan knew exactly what psalm to go to. If there is any psalm in all of the scriptures that applies specifically to the plight of the Messiah, it's Psalm 91. I mean, it should, be, it should say in bold-faced print over the top of it, Messiah's psalm. Dang. <laughs> so that's not it. What, what's the problem? Maybe he didn't read it in context. Maybe that's it. We know that the most important thing in biblical interpretation is context. What's that? Uh, what is the context? Maybe if, maybe if we looked at that, we could, we could find out where Satan went wrong. He quotes scripture at Jesus. He parses the verbs correctly. And what we find here is that the Bible... The Bible doesn't act like a tome of magic words that can just be pulled out and applied without context, without regard to the context in which they're given. And is, is this something that we do sometimes? Is this the way that we treat the Bible? Is it, the, 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 this is God's, God's words, right? They're like magic words. And if I just say them, regardless of what they actually say or regardless of what they actually mean, if I just say them and repeat them over and over and over again, without regard to what they mean or to whom those words were originally given, then God has to do what I say. Isn't, isn't the Bible like Aladdin's lamp? I, I repeat the words of Scripture. I rub the lamp. God has to do what I say just like the genie has to do what I say. And the answer to that is no. No. I know you're thinking, I came here this morning just to find out that God's not a genie in a lamp, right? But he's not. He's not. At context, trying to figure out what, a word, what something means by what it says. Context, one of the most significant helps and guides when it comes to interpreting the Bible, and it should be intuitive to all of us because no one here likes to be taken out of context. How many of you have ever been taken out of context and liked it? No one does. No one does. Dude, I've never met anyone who says, hey, the other day I, was, I, 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 I said something to somebody and they wouldn't repeat it to somebody else. It took me totally out of context. It was awesome. No, no one ever says that. No one ever says it because we understand that context drives meaning. 
Context drives meaning. You don't like being taken out of context. I don't like being taken out of context. God doesn't like being taken out of context. Unfortunately, though, Satan's not that far off in the context. He understood that this was a promise made from God to his servant, probably the Messiah. But I think he misunderstood the purpose for which the promise was given. See, God will keep his promises. God will keep his promises. Make, have no doubt about that. But promises are made in a context, and God is not bound by his words, divorced from his character. Well, maybe the problem is, is that Scripture is supposed to interpret Scripture, and maybe that's where Satan went wrong. And it, Jesus gives us a hint that maybe this was the problem when he calls into question Satan's use of these words of God. And he quotes Scripture back at him. You see, the Bible was written by many different human authors, but it was all written by one divine spirit, God himself. There are many different human authors working concurrently with the Spirit of God. And that brings about a continuity from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We should, we should expect that Scripture will not contradict Scripture because there's one divine author. And we should expect, we should expect that Scripture then will be able to interpret other Scriptures because there's one divine author. And I think this is where Satan begins to go wrong. He wants to pit one passage of scripture against another passage of scripture and that's an indication that satan is wrong here if you have one verse of the bible and you pit it against another verse of the bible and you say hey there's a contradiction here we should know because there's one divine author that our understanding of one of those two verses is wrong at least you see scripture is to be read in faith as well you know the, the bible is not a collection of impersonal truths about god and people it was written by a real god with a real character who is personal and it's written to real people going through real trials who are themselves personal and what we believe and know to be true of god how we know god how we understand him is instrumental in our understanding of God's word. That's why the, the Bible is to be read like this, in community with God's people. It's meant to be read in relationship with God. And if we doubt God's character, if we doubt God's good character, how can we hope to understand and apply God's good instructions, his comfort, his promises to our lives? It's, it's possible that you could take some passages of scripture written by this good God who loves you, and if you are out of relationship with him, if you are misjudging him, misunderstanding him, not trusting him, his good words will sound like the words of a tyrant to you. How many of you saw the movie, The, the, um, the Lord of the Rings, the first one, Fellowship of the Ring? Do you remember the scene where Bilbo early on, Bilbo has the ring and he had agreed with Gandalf that he would relinquish it and, and walk away from it. But he doesn't really want to, does he? He wants to hang on to the ring. And, and, and Gandalf very subtly, very kindly, gently suggests to him, maybe you've had the ring long enough. And, and Bilbo's countenance changes, right? Gets all dark. And he accuses Gandalf of wanting to steal the ring from him. For a moment, he was so corrupted by the ring that he began to doubt the character of Gandalf. And Gandalf says to him, I'm not trying to rob you. 
I'm trying to help you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible describes you, quite frankly, as an enemy of God. Your only hope is to hear and to understand the voice of God, to heed the voice of the good shepherd who calls you to himself, be reconciled to God. Hear the voice of God is the voice of someone beckoning, wooing, calling you into relationship with him. If, if you are a follower of Christ, you need to recognize that your standing before God doesn't guarantee right understanding or interpretation of the scriptures. You have to approach scripture with a posture of humility, trusting in God's good character, depending on who God is. Depending on his goodness, his sovereignty, his plan. And this, I think, is where Satan got it wrong, but Jesus got it right. In Satan's quest to derail the purposes of God and Jesus Christ, Satan presented Jesus with this option. Will Jesus be the Lord of God himself, or will Jesus submit to God's authority? Is God there to serve the Son, or is the Son there to serve the redemptive purposes of God? The focus of this temptation is on his relationship with God as the Son And the Son of God, if he is to do what he must do, can only live in a relationship of trust that needs no test. Jesus needed to understand that the Father will not abandon him. Jesus needed to live in that trust because there would come a time when Jesus would have to trust God the Father when he didn't feel his presence. The shadow of the cross is looming. What kind of son will Jesus be the kind of son who trusts his father? That Psalm 91 is full of the language of protection, but it doesn't say anywhere that children of God should court trouble and expect God to bail us out. Scripture is also full of statements like you reap what you sow. We don't deliberately test God's faithfulness by artificially manufacturing situations where we deliberately try to force God to act in one way or another. We are not the Lord of God. God is our Lord. You see, Jesus believed, he absolutely believed the promise of Psalm 91, but he disputed Satan's use of it. In Exodus chapter 17, when Israel was in the wilderness 1,500 years later and they needed water and they cried out, complaining, accusing, condemning God for wanting to kill them, Moses responded, why do you test the Lord? Jesus, the true son, will not do that. He chooses to trust God's good word and his good character. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan takes Jesus to a place where he can see either physically or or by vision all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory we ask ourselves, can Satan actually offer this to Jesus? And the biblical data seems to indicate, yeah, he can. Satan is, is right now the, the king of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the, the uh, ruler of this world. What, what, what the devil was offering Jesus was not sphere for service, 
but the highest status, to be king of kings. And that's Jesus' destiny. That's his destiny. Jesus is going to get it. He will, Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords. All, of, all that Satan showed Jesus, it's Jesus' by divine right. It's all going to come to him. All that glory, all that lordship is Jesus' by right. But how will Jesus get it? How will it come to him? Jesus came here to contest the dominion of the devil and to avoid the trial and the means by which he will actually achieve being king of kings and lord of lords, to avoid it by compromise, that's the test right now. And it is a crucial test of Jesus' loyalty to the Father. Israel had fallen into this temptation again and again and again, denying their exclusive loyalty to God. But the true son cannot compromise his loyalty. And so he sharply dismisses the devil. Isn't it interesting here that, that, that when Satan presents this temptation, it's not if you are the son. It, it, it's like desperation. Just fall down and worship me. And, and, and I will give you all this. And Jesus knows that he one day will get all this. But the path is through the cross. Not to accept it from Satan's evil hand. Worshiping Satan is completely at odds with true worship, with true sonship. And there's no subtlety here at all. It's a simple choice of allegiance. Are you going to follow God the Father, or will you take the easy path and follow me? It's an offer of a good end, King of kings, Lord of lords, through the absolutely wrong means. And as, if we've been reading from the beginning of the Bible up to this point, we should be holding our breath. What's Jesus going to do? I mean, what's at stake here? Everything. Everything is at stake right here. Salvation is at stake here. Because if Jesus fails at this point, if he takes the easy path, then he cannot be the Savior, the one who fulfills the redemptive purposes of God. He might very well be King of kings and Lord of lords at Satan's hand, but he will rule as a devil. Why is this? Well, it's the logic of the gospel. You see, Jesus came to reconcile you to God. He came to lift the curse. The curse, what? The curse put on humanity because of what humanity did. Humanity has sinned against God. Every human, starting with the very first couple, sinned against God, betrayed God, treachery, blasphemy, disloyalty, and the penalty for that is death. And humans got us into this problem. Sin is a human problem. Sin is a human problem. And so it requires a, a solution from humans as well. Sin requires a human solution. But as we find, as we read through, humans can't do it. They can't do it. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need someone who is God to save us. But how is he going to do this? Jesus Christ came and had to live a sinless life so that he can offer himself as the true son of David, a human, the true son of God, as a sacrifice for our sins, taking the penalty that we deserve, exhausting the wrath and penalties of a holy God against sin and rebellion. 
It makes possible God's forgiveness to create for God a people who are able to and worthy of living in that kingdom. And if this morning, if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, this is the one who's qualified to stand on your behalf, Jesus Christ. You know, you know in your heart of hearts that you cannot stand before God. He is holy, and even you at your best are not worthy of standing before God. And you need someone to stand before God for you. You need an intermediary. You need someone who can put his hand on God the Father and someone who can put his hand on you and reconcile you together. And Jesus Christ has done that. And a Christian is nothing more than someone who recognizes that and calls out to Jesus and says, save me. I need someone to stand in my place. And Jesus, you're the only one who can do that. And if you would like to talk more about this, there are elders and pastors all over the place. Come and talk to me. I would like nothing better than to talk with you about what it takes to be reconciled to God. See, the thing that's interesting about this last temptation is that Jesus will receive everything that Satan held out to him, but only after the cross. All of the glory of the nations and much, much more would be given to Jesus, but only after his death and resurrection. The path to a crown is through the cross. And here the devil tries to seduce Jesus with instant power, instant success, apart from the cross. And Satan regularly tempts that way. He promises something good. I mean, Satan, it's, how many of you are tempted by things that are repulsive to you? No, that's not even a temptation, right? It's always something good. But through a bad means, through a bad means, the price then is damning your soul. Like the Puritan said, sin promises like a God, but it pays like the devil. Only God is to be worshiped. Jesus prefaces his next Bible quotation with a command, demonstrating who he is. He's not going to worship Satan, far from it. He will command Satan to depart. Worship you, you have to obey me. Jesus is in control. Satan is the Lord's devil. They're not equal, not equal at all. Jesus is not just terminating the dialogue. He's sending Satan away. And then look at verse 11. The devil left him, he obeyed. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God was faithful to that promise of Psalm 91, wasn't he? Angelic help did come but it came on God's terms. God chooses to break the fast. God chooses to bring that for which Jesus refused to presume. We should conclude. We are told in scripture that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. And the importance of that is that now we have a high priest who knows precisely what it's like to be tempted. He has felt the full weight of your struggles. In fact, because he never gave in to temptation, he has felt all of your struggles and much more. Because what's the easiest way to, to uh, end temptation? Give in. <laughs> There's no more temptation once you give in. Jesus never did that, not once. 
Satan tempted, 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 and Jesus resisted, 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 resisted. He quite literally exhausted himself in his battle with temptation, and he died fighting Satan. And God raised him from the dead in triumph over Satan. In the book of Job, we're introduced to Job, a character who goes through horrible trials, and you you can read it. He spends the majority of his book requesting an audience with God, requesting the opportunity to present his case before God. And at one point, he calls out for an arbiter. He says, if only there was an arbiter between us, if only there was someone who might lay his hand on both of us. If, he's basically asking this. If, what I need is someone to stand in the gap for me. I need someone to put his hand on God and to put his hand on me and plead my case for me. Where is that person? Christian. That is Jesus Christ. Fully God can put his hand on God the Father. Fully man can put his hand on you and can reconcile you to God. Jesus Christ is qualified to be your Savior. He is qualified to be your great high priest. He's qualified to be your king because he is the faithful son. Let me pray. Father in heaven, We are stunned at your mercy and stunned at your wisdom and your kindness and your generosity because we know all too well that you are holy and we know all too well that we are not. And yet you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. Far better than that, you have given us a great high priest who knows you and who knows us, who is you and who is us. Father, we are stunned at that. Father, would you hold Jesus out before us, cause us, enable us to trust him and to trust you through him. Father, when we are tempted, would we flee to Jesus, always trusting in your kindness, in your goodness, in your providence? When trials come upon us, would we be quick to remember Jesus quick to flee to him and remember your kindness and your goodness and approach you with confidence and humility. Father, you are kind and good. And we celebrate the kindness and goodness that you have demonstrated on our behalf by giving to us Jesus, our great high priest, our God and our king. In his name that we pray, amen.